Maybe talk a little with, with Dylan about, about heroin. I talk about heroin. Hello and welcome to The Weeds, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Sarah Cliff. I'm here in the studio today with my colleague Dylan Scott. And I'm just going to tell you a little podcasting story. So on Thursday, otherwise known as yesterday, Dylan and Matt Iglesias and I, we got in here. We taped a great episode about the executive order and about some things about opioids. And we thought, great, we'd covered the healthcare news of the week. And then at 11.30 on Thursday night, we got the biggest healthcare news of this week that Trump will be pulling these key Obamacare subsidies. So Dylan and I are back here in the studio on Friday. We are going to tack this little extra onto the top of the weeds, and then you'll get to hear the entire episode. Before we do get to the episode, I'm going to make one more plug. I have a new show launching on Monday that I think listeners of The Weeds would really like. It is called The Impact. It is about how policy affects real people. If you are a longtime Weeds listener and you remember Weeds in the Wilds episode where we go out and tell interesting stories about policy in the real world, this is what that show is like. Our first episode looks at a $629 Band-Aid, what that tells you about American healthcare. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever you get podcasts. And our first episode is coming out in just a few days on Monday. Okay, so let's get to our show. Dylan, you're here. Hello. What happened at 11.30 last night, Dylan? So, um... Donald Trump basically has decided that, as you said, he's going to pull these these key payments to health insurers that are crucial for how Obamacare is supposed to work. So as one of the ways that uh, the Affordable Care Act makes health insurance more affordable for people is it created something called cost-sharing reductions. And what this did was, you know, everybody owes health insurance has out-of-pocket costs, your deductibles, your co-pays. And what the cost-sharing reductions were designed to do was they were basically discounts that insurers had to provide to their lowest income um, customers. And so for a normal person, you might have a deductible of $3,600 a year, but for somebody who qualifies for a cost-sharing deduction, your deductible might be only $250. So it was a way to make sure the lowest income people didn't have to pay a lot of money out of pocket for their health care. Um, now, in an interesting kind of quirk of the way the law works, health plans have to provide those discounts no matter what. The federal government is supposed to pay the money to help them cover the costs of that. But there had been an ongoing fight um, in the Obama administration between House Republicans and uh, the Obama White House about whether Congress actually had to approve the money to pay these cost-sharing reduction payments. And there, so there'd been a lawsuit going on for a couple of years, and if, the only federal judgment that had actually come down had said, Congress does need to approve these payments. They haven't done so so far, and so these payments— technically shouldn't be made until Congress does something. Now, for kind of technical reasons that we don't get into, the payments have continued, but Trump has been threatening for mm -hmm. months to cut the payments off because, as he's very openly said, he wants Obamacare to implode, and this would be one way to help that happen by making insurers uncomfortable, driving up costs, etc. And so yesterday, that's, that's all the background, and yesterday what Trump finally decided to do is he said he was going to stop these cost-sharing reduction payments, which introduces all this new uncertainty to the Obamacare markets. And it's just like a really nutty policy. So there, I, I think there are a lot of things, like when I look at Republican health care plans, like the House bill or even like the executive order, I see winners and losers. Like I see generally like healthy, young, rich people win and like old, sick, poor people lose. And like you might not look like that trade-off, but there are some people who come out a little bit better. Ending the cost-sharing reduction subsidies, it seems like it's all losers. So the CBO estimates a million people will lose insurance because premiums would rise. Like Dylan mentioned, insurance companies are required to you know, keep deductibles low for their low-income members so they make up that money they're losing by jacking up premiums. So a million people lose coverage. The government, this is one of the insane things about this situation, the government spends more money if it cuts off the subsidy because I think as weeds listeners are familiar, a lot of people get premium subsidies on Obamacare that help cover a certain percentage of the monthly costs associated with insurance those are going to go up very, very high because insurance companies need some other source of income. They raise premiums and the subsidies go up along with that. 
CBO estimates it costs $194 billion to end this subsidy. It's just like a policy with no, unless like the winning like ticket is like making Obamacare not work very well, which is what Trump seems to think it is. It is a policy that leads to the government spending more money to ensure fewer people. Yeah, the only conceivable defense really is that, you know, there is this federal order mm-hmm. sitting out there that says these payments shouldn't be made until Congress does something. But the Trump administration, like the Obama administration before them, had been making the payments for the last nine months since they took office. It seems very sort of transparently that the only reason Trump is doing this now is because Congress failed to repeal and replace Obamacare. And mm-hmm. this is a way to sort of... Pr- to uh, accelerate the decline of the Obamacare markets, which he's very openly said he wants to do. So I know you just wrote a piece about this. Like, what what happens now? How much should people, like, what's the freakout level that's appropriate to respond to this news? It's really confusing. And so I think the most important thing for people to know is that, you know, nothing has actually changed about the way Obamacare works. Subsidies are still available. People who qualify for cost-sharing reductions are still going to get the discounts. Um, And the interesting thing is that because Trump had been threatening to cut off these payments for so long, insurers, when they were proposing their premiums for next year, had many of them, most of them, I think, had already accounted for the possibility that the premiums would, or that the cost-sharing reductions. So you saw like super big premium increases. A lot of states mandated big premium increases because they didn't think these would get paid. Right. If you talk to actuaries, it's anywhere between a 10 to 20% additional increase in premiums just because of the CSR issue. And so in theory... You know, most most health plans in most states had sort of already prepared for this possibility, and not a lot should change. Um, the one thing, but we don't we don't know that for sure. You know, I asked a couple people late last night uh, what to expect, and the one word that they shared in their response was chaos. So I think I think we just don't know what's going to happen. It does appear that um, the kind of fine print of the contracts that health plans mm-hmm. sign with the federal government would allow them to pull out of the market now. There's going to be all this kind of wonky rejiggering as plans try to figure out how to sort of best bear the load of the increased costs they're going to see next year um, because the cost-sharing reduction payments are are gone. So, so I think the things to watch for are there's the potential for premiums to be increased even more than they already have been. And the, I think the real fear is that some insurers will say, you know what, the federal government is proving, proving to be an unreliable partner and we're just going to leave this market and the, the fine print of our contract allows us to do so. I don't think we know whether or not they're going to do that, but I think that's the biggest fear. But the, for no, for most people, some for somebody who just wants to buy insurance through the Affordable Care Act, as long as a bunch of insurers, there isn't this mass exodus mm-hmm. of insurers, things should function normally, at least for next year. But if the issue re- remains unresolved mm-hmm. going forward, then we, we could be in big trouble. Yeah, I think one of the weird things about this is that, like you said, people who get the cost-sharing reduction subsidies, they're actually protected. The people who could be most significantly hurt are people who actually get no subsidies who, for example, let's say, I think Florida has an average premium. It's very high. It's between 40 and for 50%. I forget exactly what it was. If you're someone who buys Obamacare in Florida with a subsidy, that subsidy is structured to kind of go up with rising premiums where you're not expected to spend, you know, more than X percent of your income on insurance. That will get you a mid-level plan on the marketplace. Um, that goes up to 400% of the poverty line, which is like $60,000 for an individual. If you get above that, you're kind of on your own and you're weathering this big premium increase that is happening because of the CSR is being halted. And you have to weather that whole thing alone, which is which is tough. And in a weird way, it's the people who don't receive these subsidies who are actually hurt the most by these decisions. And I think you're, you're definitely right, Dylan. Like the thing to watch is whether there's some mass exodus from the insurance markets. My understanding is a few states wouldn't let insurance companies tack on that CSR surcharge. They just said price without it. I don't know which states those are, but I'm sure we'll be talking about them in the coming days and weeks. But if you're an insurance company, it's like a tough proposition to stick around if you didn't price for this. And you have a lot of areas that have just one health insurance plan where like one pullout could really leave no options behind. It seems like, and keep in mind, open enrollment starts 17 days from now. There's like not a lot of time for another insurance plan to like swoop in and save the day. It's really feels like it's throwing, like you said, a ton of chaos 
into like an already chaotic marketplace when everyone was already worried about all the other things that were starting to bubble up. Yeah, and I think, you know, the sort of big picture here is, you know, there are all these sort of different mechanisms that Trump is uh, mm-hmm. using to introduce uncertainty to the health care marketplaces. But the real, like, the, the fundamental problem is uncertainty, as I some somebody in the insurance industry memorably put it to me just in the last couple of weeks, is we can plan for risk, we can't plan for uncertainty. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's sort of this, if nothing else, you know, for all the flaws that the ACA may have experienced in its first few years, health insurers at least knew that the federal government was trying mm-hmm. to make the health care law work. And what they've seen very explicitly, and there's no better example of it than yesterday's news, is that this new administration doesn't, isn't interested in making the law work and is in fact actively working to, or to make sure that it, that it functions worse than it did before. And so I think that sort of just shifting paradigm and how the federal government is treating to this law is, that's kind of one of the biggest long-term risks to Obamacare's ability to function going forward. Okay. So I think we've covered the CSRs. We are going to take you to our episode that we taped yesterday that is full of other Obamacare news, and we will just transition right over to that. Got the got the healthcare gang together because uh, President reassembled after a lull in our in our show. A lull, a, a downtick. Uh, President Trump came out this afternoon. So much is always happening in Washington, but I guess aside from focusing on tax reform, they are still doing healthcare policy. And can you just like Dylan, like what what happened today? So President Trump has signed an executive order that, in a kind of wonky way sort of tries to achieve the goals that because Republicans have failed to repeal and um, replace Obamacare, they have not been able to do in Congress. Its aim is to achieve the goals of allowing more people to buy cheaper, skimpier health coverage that does not comply with all of the Affordable Care Act's rules and regulations. And so it achieves that through two main different ways. It expands what are known as association health plans, which are these groups, you know, this this health plan that a group of businesses can come in together and purchase as one entity. And then it also expands the use of what's called short-term limited duration insurance, which is supposed to be insurance that you just buy if you think you're going to be out of work for a couple months or something like that. Right now, you can only buy those plans for three months. Uh, What we think the Trump administration ultimately is going to do is allow those plans to um, to last for an entire year. And so, I mean, the, the mechanisms are kind of wonky, but the gist is that these will provide all these sort of loopholes for people to buy coverage outside of Obamacare, which people worry is going to hurt the ACA's markets. And I think the deal with these plans is that they can act a lot like the pre-Obamacare plans, right? Like they can charge you more if you have a pre-existing condition or like with the associations, like let healthy people into the association so they can buy a cheaper plan or not cover the essential benefits. Like, I think the thing that is similar about the short-term plans, the association plans, is it essentially tries, it actually feels kind of similar to the Cruise Amendment in a way that we've talked about on the podcast, where it tries to create, like, an alternative set of plans that look like the pre-Obamacare plans with fewer benefits, um, you know, higher prices for people who are sick. And, I think, like, we've been talking to some insurance sources, and they're pretty worried about this. Like, the insurance industry is, like, not jazzed about dividing the market into, like, plan a set of plans with one rules and a set of plans with the other rules, right? Yeah. What everybody seems to agree is when you segment the market like this, like, yes, healthier people might be able to find cheaper, skimpier coverage in this sort of new market that Trump is creating. But what you're going to have is what's left behind in the Obamacare market is older people and sicker people. And that is inevitably going to drive up costs for whoever's left in the ACA coverage. So let's get back. I mean, I know this is like well-trod terrain, but like insurance fundamentals, like what, what is the issue? Like what is the problem with saying, okay, if I don't need a lot of super robust health coverage, this company wants to sell me like a cheap plan that doesn't cover that much. I don't want to spend a lot of money. I don't need a particularly generous set of benefits. So, so I'm going to get it right. Like this is making it easier to do that for your sort of canonical 20-something dude with no chronic health problems. He can get some insurance. If if I get flattened by a bus, you know, they'll help me out. But otherwise, like, what's, what's the problem? Yeah, so I think the problem is, like, possibly twofold. And one is, like, that's a lot of risk. And I think so that's, like, a discussion. Like, should we let people take on that much risk? And I think, like, some conservatives might say yes. Like, they have the right to make that decision. 
if you want to buy a plan that doesn't cover cancer treatment and like you get cancer, like that is a decision you should be allowed to make. So on one level, I think there is like that risk for the individual. But the other thing is it just fucks up the entire insurance market. Like you can't, this is not like other goods where like, you know, we go into the grocery store and like we all buy whatever we want. And like the price of broccoli like does not depend on like Matt buying broccoli and me buying broccoli and Dylan doing it. But with health insurance, like the price is tethered to who is doing the purchasing, that you can run this side market that will feel great for people who are healthy for like 20-something dudes, but that's going to fuck up the market for everybody else. Um, I think health insurance, like it's easy just to think of other forms of insurance. Like if you only had, you know, you pooled out the people who are at high risk of fires and you put them in like one home insurance owner policy and then like you take people who are, you know, not at risk of fire and you put them in a totally different group. Like you need to spread the risk of these events among a wider group of people or else insurance just doesn't really work. Well, and there's like a, there's a fundamental deal at the heart of Obamacare, right? Which is that everybody's going to have access to coverage. Everybody's going to be charged the same rates and everybody's going to be able to get the same kind of coverage that covers the same sort of benefits. And so, and there are obviously some trade-offs in that deal. To your point, you know, that means younger and healthier people are going to pay higher premiums than they would if insurers could give them these skimpy plans and and charge them a lot less because they are younger and healthier. But the part of that deal is, you know, if you do have an accident or as you do get older and, and start to build up a medical history, you're not going to be disadvantaged in the same way you were before Obamacare. And what this Trump executive order is aiming to do is is start to kind of break that deal apart and take us back to a point where you do have this but so segment. How is this going to interact with the guaranteed issue rule? So like I'm popping along, I got my short-term plan, it's pretty skimpy, I'm happy with it cuz it's pretty cheap. And then I do get cancer. So like now can I hop back into the Obamacare market? Going to have to wait till open enrollment, Matt. So, like, if you have the luck or the terrible luck of getting cancer between, like, November 1st and December 15th, you know, otherwise you're likely just locked. I mean, unless you have some other event, you lose your job, you lose your—but if you have short-term insurance, you probably don't have a job. You're kind of—I mean, it's a gamble, right? So I think that goes back to the first point I was making, that these are higher-risk plans. And I think this is the worry from— a lot of like people who worked on Obamacare is that people are going to buy these plans. They are going to think it's insurance. They're going to think it's great, but it turns out it has like a $10,000 maximum benefit. It doesn't cover prescription drugs. And then they're going to go, oh shit, I thought this was real health insurance, but it's not. And I think a lot, like there's a lot of conservative pushback to that idea saying like people should be allowed to buy those things, that there's a lot of paternalism going on. But I think it's a worry, you know, if you're going to buy one of these plans and you get really sick, like that could be a pretty rough situation. And you can't overemphasize how different the the markets between what Obamacare requires and what this short-term insurance could look like. You, the, the disparity between the two is, is really huge. I was looking at some numbers today. Um, under Obamacare, like a single person, the most money you can be charged out of your pocket is about a little more than $7,000 next year. In Georgia, with these short-term insurance plans, which do already exist for three months, for three months, you could be charged a $20,000 out-of-pocket maximum. And so, yeah, it's the the gamble is substantial. And if you were, ha- were to have, you know, one of these unfortunate, you know, medical diagnoses or an accident, people could really be on the hook for a lot more money. So, so this new plan, presumably, it will pull some people sort of out of the Obamacare exchanges and into these skimpy plans. So that then leaves the people who are left behind facing higher premiums, which may then pull even some more people mm-hmm. out, right? I mean, that's that's your, your classic death spiral. But what we've seen in like even the worst Obamacare states with the, with the highest premiums is that you have this like heavily subsidized Mm-hmm. clientele, right? So, I mean, in the end, the federal government is going to float a lot of the cost of this. Right. You could see the weird situation of fewer people in the marketplaces, but the marketplace is costing more because the premiums keep going off. I think, like, Tennessee is actually, like, an instructive example to look at. They actually do have these skimpy plans due to some weird state regulations that have allowed their association plans to exist. So, in Tennessee— you can buy coverage through the Farm Bureau. You do not have to be a farmer. Like, anyone can sign up for this coverage if they let you in. So they are going to underwrite you. They're going to 
do those questionnaires about your health history. They're going to have someone come talk to you about it. And there are an estimated, I think it's about 23,000 people. There's um, a great researcher at Georgetown, Sabrina Corlett, who's done work on this. And she estimates about 23,000 people are in these plans that don't allow people with pre-existing conditions. They're a lot cheaper. They're less robust coverage. So Tennessee, like the marketplace exists, right? Like it's not totally imploded, but it's not doing great. It has, I just looked it up recently, like a mid-level plan costs $478 a month. Um, I think that's the eighth highest premium in the entire country. Insurance companies, like they've been dealing with insurance companies pulling out for a while. There are 18 counties around Knoxville where nobody wanted to sell coverage. Like, so Tennessee suggests to me, if this all goes into effect, that Obamacare, like, that maybe it doesn't implode, but it kind of like muddles along in like a not great way. I think one of the questions I have, this may be a Dylan question, is like, does this actually happen? Like, we have this executive order that says, okay, HHS and labor, like, look into this. Like, does this happen? What is the timeline? Is this legal? Like, where does it go now that we have this executive order? Yeah, let's let's take a let's take a break and and then consider like what is actually happening here. If you've got a business, you probably need great talent for that business, and you might need it on on a short span of time. And and you don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire anymore. What you need is the right tools, smarter tools, tools like ZipRecruiter. Uh, With ZipRecruiter, you post your job to over 100 of the world's leading job boards with just one click, so you rest easy, you you know your job is being seen by all the right candidates. And then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting to receive the best possible matches. And that's what really makes ZipRecruiter different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. Uh, So you can even get a head start in the interview process by adding screening questions to your job post to help identify the most qualified candidates. So you don't need to waste time sorting through a stack of resumes to find the perfect fit. Uh, So it's no wonder that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. Uh, They've got this really easy to use dashboard that helps you manage your hiring process from start to finish uh, all in one place. That's what makes ZipRecruiter the smartest way to hire. Uh, So here's what you need to know specifically. Find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Weeds listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. You just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time, to get it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. So as Sarah was saying, this is like an order to write some regulations rather than an actual set of regulations, right? Yeah. In a way, nothing happened today except President Trump signed a piece of paper. He almost Um, didn't sign a piece of paper. Yeah, he nearly walked out, (laughs) but luckily uh, Vice President Pence pulled him back and and it was actually signed. This is the second time Trump has almost failed to sign. Is it only the second? Wait, what was the first one? I I forget which one it was, but this has definitely happened before. In part, I guess, because he's a confused old man, but also because this is not traditional. Traditionally, what exa- traditionally executive orders have had more legal force than this. This is closer to like a memo. Yeah, it's it's a request in a way. the The actual uh, wording of the document is that it asks the labor department and the health department and the treasury department to consider changing their regulations around association health plans and short term insurance. And so, what we can expect is that at some point here in the next few months. Um, those various agencies will actually propose some poli- some new policies, some new regulations to achieve the goals that President Trump did lay out in the executive order today. Um, but I do think, like watching uh, health experts respond to the executive order, like there are so many unanswered questions about how, in a technical sense, this is going to work. You know, that'll determine how much it actually disrupts the Obamacare markets. That'll determine whether you know what avenues uh, Obamacare supporters might have to challenge them in court. Like we don't, we know what President Trump hopes to achieve, but it'll, we'll have to wait to see these regulations and to see how his administration is actually going to do it, how that'll actually affect the market and sort of what vulnerabilities there will be in terms of litigation. And, and is there, them. like, is there a sense this is legal? Because I think one of the, you've been leading our coverage on this. It's a little confusing to me. Like I know it is written into Obamacare. Like you can't discriminate against with people with pre-existing conditions, what do we know or, like, do we know at this point, like, how far you can 
go through like executive order and regulation to like change. Because I know the short term ones, like some of that was done in regulation under the Obama administration. But I don't know, like how far can you go without Congress? Like, yeah, what's yeah. your take on that? You see those questions all the time. Like, how could they possibly do this? Obamacare <laughs> is the law of the land. I think the two things to keep in mind on on this specific executive order are one, like you said, the change to short term insurance, the short that shortened it to only three months, <laughs> was made by the Obama administration through regulation. And so, I'm not a lawyer, but presumably, if one administration decided to do something through regulation, another administration could choose to undo it. And I do think that's an interesting question because. So much of the way that the Obama administration implemented Obamacare hinged on them doing things through regulation. On, like, the association health plans, they're technically not doing anything through the Affordable Care Act. They're instead looking at changes to this big old law that Matt and I were talking about earlier called ERISA, which governs um, governs, uh, employer-based benefits, including up to and including health insurance. And so that is another, like there's sort of all these levers that they have at their disposal Mm -hmm. that they can pull to change health policy that don't necessarily have to do with, you know, disobeying the law of the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. I mean, another question I have about this is that to what extent, I mean, can the Trump administration, even through federal waivers, can they make states loosen up their regulations on this? Or would it just be allowing them to? That's a that's a great question and one that that's one of those technical questions that I think we'll have to see what the actual regulations say. The way I've understood it, or it's been explained to me is, you know, there's one reality where states would have actually have a lot of leeway to maybe stop this from mm-hmm. actually happening and from keeping people from migrating out of the Obamacare markets. There's another at least possibility where, you know, the Trump administration writes the regulations in such a way that they try to handcuff the state's ability to do that as much as possible. Right, because so, you could see, like, California, for example, saying, like, well, not in our state. We're not going to. Right. And you've seen, like, a lot of that so far in, like, liberal states pushing back, like, Trump cuts the advertising budget, you know, blue states raise their advertising budgets. They keep funding outreach workers. Um, so I would definitely expect, I mean, this would be even, even more of like a bifurcation of like red state, blue states and how they run their insurance market. I'd imagine like New York, for example, wants to retain the ability to ban association health plans. Well, but also, I mean, defaults matter a lot here, right? <laughs> right. So it's like, you could have a situation where Trump does something that could destabilize some markets, but that then blue states like California are able to take new affirmative steps to stop that from happening, right, using state insurance regulatory authority. But it could still be that a divided mm-hmm. state like Maryland or Virginia is like swept under by the new federal rules because they're not able to take the new affirmative steps Or it could be the opposite, right? Like the Cruz Amendment process was like states could do a waiver. And then we were sort of penciling out like, well, all these southern states probably would and the liberal states probably wouldn't, right? And so there's a – just a – there's a big difference, right? I mean, American politics is like always very clunky and like it matters a lot, not just like when there is state flexibility, but like, is it opt in or or is it opt out, right? Because we have so much, so much sort of division in in the political system. And I think that's why there's so much confusion about how much, you know, how strong the teeth of this executive order actually are. Although if it is like a national, like here's the rules, like you can opt out of them by passing more rules. Like that could be even more sweeping than the Cruz Amendment because of like where you're setting the default. We're getting up to the, like, we're kind of reaching the my <laughs> threshold for sort of ERISA expertise. But as I understand it, sort of the, the maybe dangerous thing here is that ERISA tends to preempt state-level regulation okay. and authority. And so if they're making a lot of these changes, especially to the association health plans through ERISA, that could limit states' abilities to, to mitigate the changes to their market. ERISA, man. <laughs> Gotta brush up on our ERISA law. Uh, no, but I mean, so... It seems like we would potentially be talking about a lengthy rulemaking process, though, here, right? I mean, so there, there's a another one of these, like, dusky, somewhat obscure laws, right? It's the Administrative Procedures Act, uh, which determines, like, how regulations have to be 
put forward by agencies. And you need to have, I, I don't know exactly how, how to put it, but it's like you need to do a public comment period. You need to give There's reasons. like draft regulations. There's hearings. There's like a whole, I mean, it's usually like at least like a six month, I'd say, process, possibly longer from like the regulations I've covered. And I think you mentioned with the birth control one we got last week, that one was kind of odd because they just put it out as a final rule saying, this is so important. We need to do it right now. But it sounds like on this one, they plan to go through the normal rulemaking process. They're not going to use that like speedy option that they have. Yeah, they said, I was on a call today with some administration officials and they said that explicitly. And in terms of a timetable, they did say, we don't expect any changes to be implemented before the end of this year. So we are looking at a matter of months. This isn't gonna, nothing's going to change tomorrow. And then there could week. be legal challenges. Right. Follow, I mean, we. I guess we don't know exactly what it is they will do, but the more expansive possibilities we would think would get would get lawsuits. I mean, not only from states, but potentially some insurance companies would win out under this, right? I mean, whoever it is who sells the association plans. But if you are one of these companies that's like doing well administering ACA plans in mm-hmm. I don't know where, you know, in Oregon, and then if you're going to lose a bunch of customers, you're going to try to see if you have some kind of legal cause of action. Yeah, I think insurers in particular are going to be watching for the fine print very closely. And now, have we heard much in the way of, like, congressional thoughts on this? Rand Paul went to the White House today. So maybe the most interesting wrinkle in this that that nobody really knows the answer to at this point, I don't think, is sort of what, you know, Rand Paul has talked for a long time about association health plans, and he's a big fan. He's wanted He wanted to expand them in the Senate bills that came up earlier this year, and he he was urging President Trump um, to do something about him before uh, the White House signaled that they were going to issue this executive order. And so, you know, he's he is a huge fan. And you have to wonder, you know, President Trump is still out there saying that they have 50 votes for uh, Graham Cassidy. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's crazy speculation to wonder if, you know, part of the motivation here is to satisfy some of the concerns about Republican senators who helped stop Obamacare repeal and replace the first time and say, hey, we're going to give you some wins through what we can do by executive order. And and maybe when this healthcare debate comes back up in a few months, you might uh, look more kindly on what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Other than that, you know, I think it breaks down pretty obviously. Republicans say more choice and lower premiums sound great. And Democrats say they're trying to sabotage the Affordable <laughs> Care Act. Okay, so to take another break. I want to dive a, a little bit more into, into the, the politics of, of what's going on here. I meet a lot of Weeds listeners, I hear from you guys, and I know that you're curious, eager to learn people. And I'm that way too, uh, which which is why, you know, I enjoy doing this show, and it's why I know you're going to enjoy watching The Great Courses Plus as much as I do. They have thousands of fascinating video lectures on a huge range of topics to choose from, world history, politics, but even more sort of hobby stuff, photography, and chess. And it's all presented by trusted, engaging experts. The Great Courses Plus offers unlimited access to learn about anything that interests you. You stream or download lectures to watch on any device, anytime you want. Uh, something I've been watching recently is their history of the Supreme Court. Uh, this is really one of the most powerful, prestigious judicial institutions in the world, uh, but, but it didn't really always start out that way. Uh, the course explores how the Supreme Court evolved through, through conflict and how we sort of got to the point where we have the Supreme Court that we know today. Over the course of the 19th century, it played a very different role in American politics than the one we know. But, you know, conflict between parties, between the different branches of government, it eventually evolved into the institution that we know uh, all about it. Uh, so I want you to benefit from The Great Courses Plus as much as I have. Uh, they're offering Weeds listeners a full month of free video lectures when you sign up using our special URL. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Uh, so you can start your free month now sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. So the Trump administration put a sort of broadly similar executive order out, like right at the beginning. And we interpreted that as like, that was like part of the kickoff for ACA repeal, right? Now here... Do we see, I mean, Trump said on, it was Hannity, right, uh, on Wednesday night. He was like, I think we have the 50 votes right now. <laughs> and, and nobody else thinks that's true exactly. But I, I guess my question is, like, who is who is driving this, right? Like, one mode of executive action is you decide 
that you're not going to get a bill passed. So you come up with some stuff that you can do to accomplish some of your goals, right? A lot of Obama's second term on like everything mm-hmm. was like that. Then another one is, okay, you're doing something to try to create like momentum for for a cause. So like, what do we think, what do we think they're trying to accomplish here? Like, what's the What's the desired end state of this, like, healthy people get into cheaper plans, costs go up in the other plans, and then people say, um, this is good, I feel better? So my sense is Trump, I think we have established, is completely disinterested in the uh, granular health policy. And he fired his health secretary. And he fired his health secretary. Well, he was flying around in those private planes. <laughs> but I do, think, I do think we've established that he is he's genuinely embarrassed and somewhat and frustrated that Congress was not able to pass an Ob- I'm, you know, in quotes, an Obamacare repeal bill, whatever it was. And so I feel like a part of this is just here's a chance, you know, for President Trump to get up, give a speech sign a piece of paper and get a bunch of headlines about how he's changing health care and, and undermining the Affordable Care Act. I mean, he said that he, he tweeted something the other day that sounded strangely and sort of perversely reminiscent of President Obama that, you know, if Congress wasn't going to do anything, then he was going to take <laughs> right. the power of the pen and, and change things. And so I don't, I think, it, you know, especially as he looks at it in a very binary we lost in Congress on health care, and so I'm going to get a win by by signing this executive order. Um, and, you know, he's going to get that at least today. But not to be, like, too conspiracy theory-ish, but I think there's also a long game here. And the long game would be, like, destabilizing Obamacare to the point where you get to take another shot at it next year. So a lot of people are going to read headlines. Like, they'll read headlines on Vox.com, like— Trump signs executive order to, like, undermine the Affordable Care Act. And they'll start thinking, oh, like, maybe Obamacare doesn't exist and there won't see any ads because the advertising budget is, you know, close to zero and no outreach worker is going to contact them because they had their budget slashed 40%. And, you know, you're not going to have, you know, like you did last year, the White House, you know, using the bully pulpit to tell people about this. You're going to have a lot less outreach around enrollment, you know, we could see, like, an action on the individual mandate as well to say, like, we're not going to enforce that as closely. So all of that is near certainly going to lead to a worse open enrollment where fewer people sign up for coverage. And then, like, you can see Republicans are going to say, look, I told you so. Like, this thing is failing. Like, we need to replace it. We need to repass something else. I mean, I might—I don't know if I'm giving them too much long-term planning credit, but it seems like this also adds up to something bigger. Like, you could— this is part of the framework to, like, make the case, like, Obamacare is a failure and we need to replace it with something else. And you can do all these things that don't make Obamacare work very well. But so uh, I still see two possibilities inside that, right? Like, there's two pieces, really, to Affordable Care Act, or three, right? There's, like, regulation of the large group market, there's the new exchanges, and there's the Medicaid expansion. So one thing you could do is say, okay— we can, through just sort of sheer perversity, we can basically kill off the exchanges, right? If we don't promote them, there's like a million different things we do, and they will just kind of die off, and we will be rid of them, which is good because we we just don't like them. The other theory is we can leverage their death-like state into getting Congress to enact a sweeping cutback to Medicaid, Right? That's like repeal, quote-unquote. Those seem like different ideas to me and not not that, like, clearly aligned, right? Like, what about six months' worth of headlines about, like, premiums are skyrocketing, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, how does that make it an easier sell in Congress to say, like— and now everyone's going to get kicked out of the nursing home. Like, it, it doesn't— th- I don't bet you've seen, like, Trump, like, sharing, like, doing this line since day one about how Obamacare is imploding. And he's the president at this point. Like, I He don't, is the president. That's true. I don't think it makes it easier, but this is, like, clearly a theory he has in his head. If it just, like, crumbles, then I can do the legislative thing that I actually want to do. I don't think it's, like, a great strategy or even a good strategy, but it is an idea— that he seems very wedded to, where he talks about Obamacare's implosion as a way to get to, like, the Medicaid cuts and the the other things well, they want to do and repeal. I guess another way of thinking about this, Dylan, is, like, so Trump is not, like, a super policy guy. T- 
Tom Price got fired. Chief of Staff John Kelly's a Marine General, kind of border security guy. Um, Stephen Miller seems to mostly focus on hating immigrants. Uh, Jeff Sessions doesn't like immigrants, doesn't like black people. Who, like, who, who is doing this? Like, Gary Cohn and Steve Mnuchin seem to be working on the tax plan. Like, is, does it seem like Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan think this is a really good idea and this is part of their strategy for getting things done? Or is this closer to, like Trump tweeted about how maybe the FTC should cancel NBC's broadcast license and then everyone was like, I don't know, that seems weird. I do think there's a lot of crowdsourcing to Congress. Like um, like we already mentioned, the Association Health <laughs> Plans idea is sort of a, uh, a pet project of Rand Paul's. And I had actually missed this, but apparently back in the summer, this group of Republican senators emailed um, sent a letter to Trump and urged him to make this change that we're now expecting to the short-term insurance plan. So, yeah, I think in part because there is this sort of lack of institutional knowledge within the executive branch when it comes to health policy, Congress is helping direct a lot of this, even if they aren't, you know, actually passing. But it's it not like themselves. a Mitch McConnell, Paul Ryan. It's like it's Rand Paul that, and yeah. whoever else like has an idea. That could get to the presidency or yeah, I think if you know if you can get your idea in front of Trump, there's a pretty solid track record now that he'll be like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. We should we should do that. And like you said, like he's not the policy expert. So I think like you were saying, Matt, like I don't know if he understands the Medicaid cuts. Like I don't know if he under because he keeps talking about this health insurance program that's going to provide insurance to everybody, and he keeps talking about something called Obamacare repeal that he wants to pass. And I think like his end game. I don't know if it's Medicaid cuts. I know it's like a repeal Obamacare because it's imploding. But I think like the lack of policy, that might help explain like how he thinks through, okay, we just need to show Obamacare is imploding with like less thought to like, well, here are the options we have for for replacement plans. So I'm a longtime believer in the conspiracy theory that Rand Paul- It's my favorite Matt Iglesias conspiracy. Has been been trying to save Kentucky's Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. And that if you you look at his votes, right, he, he voted for like the clean repeal bill that like tons of people mm-hmm. were against. And he voted for the skinny repeal bill that would have like undone all the exchanges but left Medicaid intact. And then he voted against all the other bills. And he would claim that the problem with the other bills is that they were half measures. But he didn't seem to have a problem with the skinny repeal half measure. Right. And it it just it it looked like if he wasn't Rand Paul far right libertarian that you would say well what he's doing is he's saying you should keep the Medicaid expansion and his interest in this to me it feels a little bit like he's giving Trump a shiny object to chase that will like lead him off the path of Medicaid that particularly with Tom Price is like a long time like real budget cutter, you know, out of the room that you have like maybe like Mick Mulvaney standing on his left shoulder being like, we got to cut these programs, Mr. President. And then Rand Paul's like, (laughs) no, 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 no. You don't even need to mess around with Congress. You can just issue some meaningless executive orders. Right. And just for context, Kentucky has had the most successful Medicaid expansion in the entire country, like massive, massive declines and there are some people in the marketplace, but, like, because it's a relatively low-income state, like, they just have a really high number of people on Medicaid there. Yeah, and I, you know, I I, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I, I I agree that there is a, a consistency there. The Association Health Plan thing is interesting because he had, he's been talking about it for a long time, and yet it was something, you know, Sarah wrote about this, you know, nobody noticed the changes that they proposed in the in the. Senate bill. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's one of those ideas that's just been floating out there for a long time in conservative health policy circles that nobody ever took particularly seriously or cared about. And it does feel in a way that Rand has just sort of plucked this away, plucked this out of the cupboard and said, you know, this is the good idea that I'm going to present as an alternative so to curious, like, you talk to people. Is this executive order like a small deal, a middle-sized deal, like a giant deal? How do you think, like, is this gutting Obamacare, or is it just like another little rock being thrown out of it that'll function a little bit less well? I think it's a medium-sized deal for the time being. Like, it obviously just introduces a lot of uncertainty into the market, especially as we're heading into open enrollment, something we've kind mm-hmm. of uh, danced around a little bit here. And But then it'll, you know, it'll depend quite a bit on the specifics. So if, if the Trump administration sort of decides to go full bore and, you know, 
you know, expand short-term insurance to a year and allows people to renew, for example, like that would probably deal a pretty serious blow to the individual insurance market. And then if you paired that with letting individual, one of the other uh, unanswered questions is whether individuals could buy into the association health plans. And so then Mm -hmm. if you do that, um, you're just draining the individual insurance market even further, and you're probably creating the situation where where the market starts to really struggle. Um, on the other hand, you know, maybe he just makes it a little easier for associations to to set up. Like individuals can't join in. Right, individuals yeah. can't join in. Um, maybe uh, you're not allowed to renew short-term insurance. And the other thing will obviously be how the market reacts to this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we've talked with some folks in the insurance industry where it's just not clear, you know, how eager health plans are going to be to set up these association mark uh, association health plans or to play in the short term market, um, especially because they're inve- a lot of them are invested in Obamacare, and so, you know, participating in something that's going to make Obamacare work worse doesn't necessarily seem in their best interest. So I think there's a bit of a mix of how how uh, the private sector reacts, and then well, again, I hate to keep coming back to it, but. We have to kind of wait till we see the fine print on what Trump actually wants to do. So, uh, what do we what do we really know about association health plans? I mean, this is not it's like a new idea to the Affordable Care Act debate, but it's like an old policy concept, right? I mean, the idea was we we sort of evolved this like employer based health insurance system a little bit by accident. It works well enough for big companies because if you just have a lot of employees, you probably have a pretty good risk pool just in a sort of law of large number sense. But it doesn't work that well for small businesses. For I mean, for the same reason, it doesn't work that well for individuals. If there's only nine people at your company, like you might have a bad risk adjustment. You can't bargain that well with insurance companies. So, I mean, for a long time, there's sort of been this idea like, well, we could just have a bunch of small employers like team up and then they could insure like a big insurer. But this is never really like clicked, right? I mean, I I just like, I I know, I mean, I I saw like this like a 2006 health affairs article and it's like going through like Bill Clinton thought in 1994, he could do this, that. It it just seems like one of these things that people have been like mucking around with for for a long time without, without doing that much. Yeah, and I think the couple of examples that I actually am aware of, like Kentucky, I know, tried to institute a pretty robust association health plan model at one time, and it just seems not to have worked. Like, it both didn't work internally, and then it also damaged the individual insurance market in the state. And so it seemed to more or less just flop. And I think the other thing that's maybe important to keep in mind is the association health plans are kind of notorious for being rife with fraud and sort of scams, um, like especially back when they were poorly regulated at the at the state level back in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, every time I've kind of called up an expert and said, hey, explain association health plans to me, the, the possibilities for fraud and just because it was not a well understood or well regulated market um, has come up again and again. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the idea like makes sense. So you think of it, I think in like a classic form, like you have a bunch of bakeries and they make a bakery association and then they can like harness that power of having a big employer. But one of the things that happens in that case before the Affordable Care Act, state had, states had really, really different standards of like what benefits you had to cover, you know, what sort of, um, you know, ratings you could do. So you could have, you know, a bakery association that includes a baker in Alabama and a bakery up in New York, and you would just choose the Alabama insurance regulations because they have very, very few mandated benefits. You get a cheap plan. And that probably means like only healthy bakers want to join your association because the ones who have higher health conditions, they want like a robust insurance plan. And you also saw like it quickly proliferated, not just from like a bunch of bakeries, like one of my favorite association health plans I've learned about. I forget the exact name, but it was basically like Association of Americans Who Like to Travel. Sure. So it was like basically anyone could like, it's like something like, you know, AAA, like the auto, it's auto, it's not, it's an auto insurance, like auto benefit or like roadside, whatever. Automobile Association of auto, America. Yeah, that's the one. Like they could be like Americans Who Drive Automobiles Association and then they could, you know, create an association health plan that they could domicile in a state with few mandates or have some kind of like um, health questionnaire to get into it, that it it became, you know, something that bakeries would use, but also like people would just use to get cheaper insurance. And like people in New York might use to get insurance that, um, you know, would only fit the Alabama rules. 
And here, the the paternalism issues that, mm-hmm. that you raise there seem really serious to me. I mean, I think on the individual market, I can I can see the case for what conservatives are saying that look like if somebody wants to buy this skimpy plan that they want to buy it. I don't know, maybe who knows. When it comes to jobs, right? I mean, I have uh, interviewed people for jobs, tried to recruit people for jobs at Vox. I've also applied for jobs myself. A, a fairly standard question that people would ask is like, what kind of benefits do you guys have? And I'd be like, we've got a health insurance plan. And uh, they'd be like, well, do you have a 401k match? And at the time, we didn't, but now we do. Woo, woo, yes, hooray, hooray. Um, And me too, you know, I'd be like, does this job come with insurance? And the answer is yes. Um, What I have never heard anybody do is like, What's the actuarial value? I mean, no, but you, you don't even. You've mean, never interviewed me. Well, but it does seem to me right. that like human beings applying for jobs operate with the assumption that insurance is a relatively standardized product and that if the job at the bakery says it offers health insurance, that means it's probably going to be something that's like similar to what. Vox has or what what any company has. So there's actually a really good reason. There's like a strong motive if you can identify some loophole and you can at your bakery offer something that to you as an employer is incredibly cheap, but to your employees is actually awful. Like, And most of them won't figure it out because most people are going to have like low bills and like they're not going to run into this, but you're going to have like one person who really does figure it out because they need real insurance. Right. Right. I mean, exactly. It's just like this is a situation in which you can see the scam happening. Like as an employer, I just want cheap insurance. My employees just want to hear we have insurance. The employee side premium is like not high. Mm-hmm. Everybody feels good about it. And then you get cancer. And then you <laughs> find out that like the job that you thought had health insurance actually doesn't cover anything like that could really happen. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I mean, that sort of goes back to the fundamental challenge of insuring small businesses in the first place. They obviously don't have the resources of large employers to provide robust benefits packages. And then, you know, and so they're a little more akin to the individual market where before Obamacare, you had this sort of race race to the bottom. And I, th- I think the thing with the th- association health plans is they don't sort of solve that problem, even though in theory they sound like they do. They sound like they should be able to pull together resources um, that allow allow them to function closer to a large employer. But in practice, we've seen that they don't. And do we know why there's so much fraud in this market? I mean, this does seem to be like the legendary thing is that like people would just have scams in here. And I mean, Donald Trump enjoys a good sort of business scam and is probably not putting in place strong new safeguards that will prevent that from happening. Yeah. But like, is there a particular reason that you're aware of or just sort of weak, just like you don't have a good HR department so you can be taken advantage of? I'll confess I don't really know. I don't know if Sarah does. It's just sort of like it was poorly understood and a poorly understood market and certainly not like the top priority for state mm-hmm. regulators. And so that just sort of created this opportunity for, um, you know, malicious folks to uh, to take advantage. Sounds good. Um, okay, so I mean, obviously we love healthcare at Vox. We are going to continue uh, staying on this and, and see what develops. Uh, it's like a lot of a lot of questions. Going to take take a final break and then talk about drugs. Drugs. I bet you guys know all about Lyft, uh, but but Lyft is the company that knows that drivers are what keeps them moving. Uh, this is the ride-sharing company that really wants to do everything they can to make sure that their drivers are happy on every single trip, and, and they want to get more happy drivers. Uh, so it's a, it's a simple formula where happy drivers mean happy passengers. That's why 9 out of 10 Lyft rides get a perfect five-star rating. And as a Lyft driver, you can earn hundreds of dollars per week plus tips. If you want to earn more money, you drive more. It's never been easier to give yourself a raise. Uh, Lyft was the first ride-sharing platform with tipping built right into the app because they believe, you know, getting tips shouldn't depend on sort of do you have some crumpled $1 bills in your pockets or not. And as a driver, you keep 100% of the tips and the tips add up fast. Drivers have been paid over $200 million since the tipping feature was first introduced. What's even better is that their express pay feature lets you get paid your money almost instantly instead of waiting for weeks. They've even taken the guest work out of pickups. Uh, The new AMP device uses color coding to help passengers find their drivers. 
matters. Uh, so join the ride-sharing company that believes in treating its people better. Go to lyft.com slash weeds today, and you can get a $500 new driver bonus. That's lyft.com slash weeds, lyft.com slash weeds. It's limited time only. Terms do apply. All right, so I, I, as long as you're here, Dylan, I, I wanted to talk to you about this, this great piece you wrote a, a couple of weeks ago, and it was about heroin and how really the sort of, I don't know, I mean, you, you can put it in your own terms, but it's like we, we're now talking about an opioids crisis, and the focus is very much on the prescription drugs, uh, but I think the evidence is that we've sort of, like, gone so far that like now tons of people are using heroin. Yeah, I mean, the sort of the impetus for this piece was this new piece of research. Um, but what was striking about it, I think, is that, you know, I think there's a popular narrative, um, you know, in our public discourse about the opioid crisis, which is that people, you know, well-meaning people who maybe have an accident um, or maybe get sick, you know, get prescribed opioids. And then, you know, because these are very, you know, addictive uh, narcotics, they end up getting, adi- you know, getting addicted, getting dependent, and then maybe perhaps they might move on to heroin. And what this new research had found is that, you know, back 10 years ago, that was pretty true. Like for people who had become dependent on opioids, they had started by using prescription painkillers. But what's changed is now here in 2015, almost as many people are starting by using heroin directly as are starting with painkillers. And so it's sort of that that entry point into dependence and addiction has is starting to fundamentally change where people are just going directly to the illicit drug to heroin and I don't think that our our you know our public conversation has caught up with this. I was talking with somebody who who works on these issues all the time and they were at a, a hearing in the Senate um, that was supposed to be about the opioid crisis and they said for the first hour of the hearing all anybody was talking about was how to curb the abuse of prescription painkillers, which I don't want to diminish that at all. It's still hugely important because still 40% of people who become dependent on opioids still start with painkillers. But there's not been really any sort of shift in discussion of how do we, you know, how do we need to approach this if people are just going straight to heroin right off the bat. And why did that happen? Is that just like a side effect of the wider availability of heroin? Is like the people going from prescription drugs create that market? Or like, why do you have more people starting with heroin now? I think there's a long backstory here that I'm not going to try to unpack in its entirety now. But what's basically happened is we, you know, because people did recognize that people were becoming dependent on prescription opioids, there's been a pretty robust effort to try to crack down on illicit prescribing or on the illicit spread of prescription drugs. And so that's you know, at the street level, that's driven up the cost of prescription painkillers. And at the same time, um, there's a great book called Dreamland that anybody's interested it's in this so should read. It's so good. Yeah, anybody who's interested you in this should read, should read it. it. Um, you know, at the same time, there were, you know, Mexican drug cartels that recognized this sort of um, open market where if they, and they kind of devised this very elaborate system that the, the book describes in great detail um, to bring cheap, readily accessible heroin into American cities. And so what you've seen is the cost of prescription, the point Mm -hmm. being the cost of prescription painkillers have gone up and become, you know, they become less easy to access. And at the same time, the cost of heroin has been coming down. It's become a lot more readily available. Yeah. And I mean, you, you mentioned American cities, but I I talked to one expert on, on sort of drug use a a couple months ago. And he said to me that the, the key thing here is not cities, but that, like, it used to be that outside of major cities, you could not get heroin, right? Mm-hmm. So nobody became a heroin addict in small town X because there there was no heroin to be had. But then you could always get prescription drugs, even in small mm-hmm. towns. We have doctors. We have hospitals. So you had addicts developing. And then you had a movement of heroin markets into new areas to try to serve the pill addicts, right? Because there's substitutability and it's cheaper. But then once the heroin supply becomes established in many more places than it used to be, now you can have people who are just getting, you know, they're using heroin. Just like, it, I mean, mm-hmm. it's always been that a certain number of people pick up illegal drugs as a recreational habit. But it used to be that that would not be as much of an issue in certain parts of of America because there was no supply. But once the heroin supplier network uh, becomes much more robust and much more nationalized, much more widespread, penetrates Mm -hmm. into much smaller communities, now you have just like classic inner city drug problems, but everywhere. 
Yeah, I mean, that was the fundamental assumption of this new research was that the that heroin had become had spread and become more available to fill the need of people who were already dependent on opioids. And they assumed that that would also mean, to your point, Matt, that people would just more people would just start by start out by trying heroin. And what they, the, the numbers are really striking in 2005. I'm, I'm recalling this off the top of my head, but in 2005, 80% of people who became dependent on opioids started with painkillers and 10% started with heroin. And in 2015, that had shifted to about 40% of people started with painkillers and 33% started with heroin. So, I mean, the, the shift has been dramatic. Well, and the policy intervention feels more challenging, too, because I think with the opioids, like we have started doing a lot of things that make it harder for doctors to prescribe opioids. You know, CDC has put out new prescribing guidelines a lot of states have, you know, reduced the number of pills that you can prescribe to someone in an acute situation. Um, a lot of pharmacies seem to have even stocked, um, stopped stocking these pills. I had to try and pick up some, I forget what, I think it was Oxycontin after my husband had surgery. And like CVS does not stock Oxycontin, it turns out, anymore. You have to like yeah. go a lot of places to find someone who will give it to you. Um, but with hair, like that all exists in a controlled, um, prescribed system it seems like we like heroin is obviously already illegal. The policy intervention, and you have like like you mentioned, like it's described in Green, Dreamland, like these really well integrated Mexican cartels that have gotten very good at like penetrating a lot of areas that didn't used to deal with heroin. It seems like with the prescription drugs, we know the policy levers to pull. We know like there's continuing medical medical education. There's prescribing deadlines. The policy levers on like reducing people starting on heroin seem more challenging to me. Yeah. And I think, a, you know, a repeated frustration I've heard in talking to folks who work on this issue over the last couple of years is that we focus almost entirely on the supply side of things. And whether that's Donald Trump's wall on the Mexican border or whether that's, you know, better prescribing practices to, to prevent opioids from getting on the street, we don't spend nearly as much time as sort of how do we drive down this, the demand among a certain percentage of our population to, to want to abuse drugs in the first place. And I mean, I mean, this is I don't know how to say it. It's a really bad situation. I mean, when the move was made to crack down on pill suppliers, I think policymakers were aware that there was a risk that you were going to see a lot of people diverted into the heroin market. I think they didn't fully understand the fentanyl situation, but they but they knew that this was going to take the sort of stock of addicts and actually put them at greater risk for, for overdoses. <laughs> and they decided that they had to make that call, that the only way to cut off the flow of new addicts was to make this choice, right? And I think what you're seeing with the heroin initiations is that this sort of strategy to, like, cauterize the wound and sacrifice a cohort of addicts to the streets and the black market, but to cut off the new addicts, that that has not worked. That instead, like, this old stock of addicts has moved to heroin, and then the heroin dealers have now established a whole new pipeline into addiction that has nothing to do with the prescription drug market that the FDA can't do anything about, and that basically the whole discussion that we've been having is now obsolete. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and the problem is our our discourse is, yeah, always very narrowly tailored. Like you go out, like I was in a, uh, I went out to a city in Southern Indiana last year um, that had been, had a terrible HIV outbreak because of needle abuse. And like, you know, you talk to people there and they're like, you know, we have to change this on like a cultural level, on an economic level. You know, like it's a really holistic problem that, that has, is not tailored to very neat and tidy solutions like prescription drug monitoring programs. And yet at this, you know, when you go down to Capitol Hill and when the Senate holds hearing on this, you know, there seems to be a lot of like, all right, if we just sort of turn this lever, if we just make it harder for people to get a hold of prescription painkillers, then that'll fix the problem. And to your point, I think the this fundamental shift towards heroin proves that that, that isn't true. There was a really interesting article that our colleague, um, Erman Lopez, wrote a few months ago. Um, he went out to Vancouver to this clinic that prescribes heroin. And basically it has at its core an idea that's you know, there are some people who you can help into recovery, some people who develop a heroin addiction who can lose that heroin addiction. But there are some addicts that will continue to be addicts. And they would, at least at this particular clinic, they would prefer to administer heroin in safer, monitored doses versus having people 
in needle-sharing situations, you know, getting, you know, things laced with things they're not aware of. So you have this clinic in Vancouver that is giving people monitored doses of heroin. You know, I don't know if that's an approach we're ready for in the United States. I don't know how much you can scale it up. We're talking about, like, one clinic in one North American city. But it's, like, hard, like, it's it's hard to see, like, what else you do. Uh, Like you said, like, it's such a big challenge involving cultural forces and economic forces, like how else you intervene. I think that's why people like turn to things like prescription drug monitoring programs because they're concrete. They do like do some work, but you could actually see like, oh, okay, like this is a way I can do that. Whereas like people starting with heroin doesn't lend itself to super easy solutions. But also I think advocates feel that there's been this sort of hard won gain of a more humane approach mm-hmm. to drug abuse than we saw with with crack and and with cocaine and i think that the i think there's a hesitance to jeopardize that by talking about people who initiate heroin use in black markets right yep. that that part of the theory right is that we have these more sympathetic more relatable more frankly white middle class sounding people who are victims of poor medical practice, unscrupulous pharmaceutical company. And I mean, that's all true, by the way. But but that that has created a sort of a new canonical addict, right, who the public is more willing to see as a victim who needs help rather than as like a crook who needs punishment. And to start calling attention to the existence of people who... I don't know what, wanted to try heroin on a friend's recommendation, and so they bought it from a drug dealer, that that really undermines the sort of, like, the new opioid, the the new addiction narrative, the new, like, let's be nice sentiment. And so people want to keep it off stage, but the risk is that the problem will grow and grow. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. As the the gentleman that I talked to who was at the setting, Senate hearing put it, like, nobody wants to say heroin. And that is sort of the fundamental problem that, that we haven't gotten over right now. Well, with that, another fun and uplifting episode <laughs> of The Weeds. Um, thanks, uh, Dylan and, and Sarah. Uh, th- thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to uh, our, our producer and engineer, uh, Peter Leonard. And uh, we will see you next week. And also look out Next week, the impact launches. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's going to be great. <laughs>